0: Hello and welcome to Spawn, a common sense and hopefully informative discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey everyone, I'm Kristen Chase. I'm one of the co-founders of CoolMomPicks.com. Liz will be back with us next week for our last show of 2018. But for this episode, it's just me and a special guest, author Kate Inglis. We're going to be talking about her new book. It's called Notes for the Everlost, A Field Guide to Grief, which means yes, that today's topic will be of a sensitive nature. Now, I've known Kate for many years. I was first introduced to her blog where she shared so openly and beautifully about the loss of her son, Liam. She went on to found a site called Glow in the Woods, which is the first online bereavement community for parents. She's written several adventure books and novels for kids that are now joined by her latest work, which is part memoir, part handbook. Welcome, Kate. I'm so glad you're here with me. Hi, thank you for having me. I feel like we have touched base. Thank goodness for Facebook, I guess. I mean, has anyone ever said that? <laughs> <laughs> I
1: know. I have such mixed feelings about it because it's become kind of integral to how we communicate because we don't need any emails and we can just kind of peek in on each other like looking through a living room window, which actually sounds creepier than I meant it to say. No, it's okay. But you know what?
0: People think Facebook is creepy. So it's kind of funny that you said that. But yeah. we both started Blogging ish, I guess, near the same time, and it's been exciting to see all the things that you've been doing. You have so many books. I mean, I can't even believe it—the adventure books and the novels for kids, and of course, now what we're talking about today is your newest, "Notes for the Ever Lost." But I want to kind of back up a bit because I know your story. I've followed your blog for a really long time, yeah. and you know, you started writing about this topic publicly and so beautifully, kind of as it was happening, right. and then. The experience for many years, but I know that many folks may not know your story. So could you share a bit about how you came to be the author of a book about grief and loss? And then just maybe piggyback that with what was the catalyst for it coming out now? Because I know that you've been writing about this topic for so long.
1: Oh, yeah. So in 2007, I was pregnant with twins identical boys, and uh, went into labor at 27 weeks, which is devastatingly early to the point where, you know, you're in the car going to the hospital and just in complete denial. Like, this can't be happening because I'm only 27 weeks. You know, it's terrifying, but at the same time, it unfolds in front of you like a slow-motion bomb going off and uh, it was hard to believe that it happened. Nothing really devastating like that had ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. You know, before we go through serious trauma in our lives, and I think (laughs) Some of us hit trauma in childhood, some of us don't get it until later in life, but you don't realize until that moment, you know, if you're fortunate enough to not face it in childhood, you don't realize how uneventful your life has been. Mm. You know, my life had always had its various stressors and melodrama and everything, but then, of course, your perspective changes when everything goes really wrong at three o'clock in the morning. So uh, we went into the hospital and everything um was just kind of a complete disaster. Yeah, geez. Uh, and so Liam and Ben were born three months too soon, and they were both two pounds. You know, that's really not a couple of sticks of American butter, but certainly a couple of sticks of Canadian. Yeah. So they were tiny and in quite dire straits. We were in the hospital for two months in total, but six weeks into it, after heart surgery and brain surgery, Liam died in my arms. mm Um, we just had to let him go because he was too damaged. I mean, letting him go, it sounds like a weird thing. It's a bit like saying, I lost a child. We have strange words to get around having to say, the baby died right we want to soften the edges of that story for ourselves yeah it strikes me a bit funny to hear those things coming out of my mouth but um, <laughs> yeah but we do it's just kind of a habitual thing so my infant son's body was the first dead body that I had ever seen mm. because we had just been a fortunate family I guess where the only death that I had ever witnessed had been of grandparents that had had long and happy lives yeah and nobody had any open caskets so it really turned on a lot of lights for me so that I could sort of see the dark corners of this experience of being human, it is one of the deepest, most vivid cosmic injustices because they are the most innocent. I mean, all children are innocent, but there is something about a life ending before it's even had a chance to begin. It was such terror and it was such a trauma, but at the same time, I had to dig to find some beauty in my knowledge of him and in my experience of being his mother. So having the blog when I went into the hospital, it kind of became a bit of a container for what was happening. And I mean, it never had been more useful than that in terms of letting people know what was going on. It was a bit of a lifeline for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, and I know that you connected with so many other parents who were in a similar situation and had experienced loss in the many different ways that it can come to a parent. And then you ended up starting a bereavement community that I remember as well. That was a couple of years later, right? Glow in the Woods.
1: Yeah, it was actually a year after Ben's birth... Um I'm just so used to saying Ben's birthday and in my mind I'm kind of whispering and Liam. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but Ben is the one who's here and so he's the one that kind of owns that day in many ways in a way that's very practical. So um but yeah that was a year after They were born. And, you know, there was nothing at the time for infant loss. Really, the only things that you could find online were miscarriage. Right. I was just going to say. And to be fair, you know, miscarriage is difficult and devastatingly disappointing in so many ways, but you have a lot of company when you go through miscarriage because one in four of us will experience a miscarriage to one degree or another. Thankfully, infant loss is a lot rarer, mm-hmm. which is wonderful, but it means that when it does happen, you are socially isolated in so many ways, partly because you can't find anyone else that has seen what you've seen and that has to carry these kinds of memories, while at the same time, people look at you and they think, oh, dead baby, and they look away. They look at their shoes, they spin around and walk in the other direction, and that's why when we first started the site, we wanted something secular, meaning for everyone. Right. Um, we, talk a lot about spirituality and faith, but in a very broad and diverse way. Mm -hmm. We wanted something intellectual. We wanted something really raw and very real. We didn't want cherubs. We didn't want origami cranes. We didn't want daisies. We wanted realness. And I remember in those early days trying to think about the us that was forming in this orbit of bereaved parents, and it felt like being Medusa. Mm -hmm. because the rest of the world was like, oh, if I engage with this person, I'm going to turn to stone. It was so deeply, deeply isolating. I can only imagine.
0: I've shared this story publicly, but not too much that I had a sister who passed away. She was nine months old. Yeah, Yeah. she had spinal meningitis. And she was between me and my younger brother, who's five years younger than me. That was back in the 80s. And I really didn't have a good grasp on what the experience was like. You know, my whole thing was when I explained it, people would be like, oh, and I'd be like, oh, she was just a baby. I mean, that's what I would say. Yeah. Because in my mind that somehow made it not as bad. And then I had a nine month old and I remember just completely falling apart. Like falling Mm -mm. apart, calling my mom and just being like, how did you survive? I know. Because it's so uncomfortable. It's like no one wanted to talk about it. It is probably everyone's worst fear, right? And so they're seeing it in you right in front of them. Yeah. And it's how do I face that fear?
1: Yeah. It's an interesting position to be in to be really frustrated at that isolation. But at the same time, having a lot of empathy for people that had a hard time facing me because we aren't very good at coping with trauma and pain and coping with people who are trying to cope. That's
0: a great point to be
1: made, that it's
0: not even just our own ability to cope with pain, it's the ability to cope with someone else's pain. You know, Canada versus the United States, but like here, it's very much like everything's okay, everything's fine, we're happy, we're good. Are you good? Are you smiling? Mm -hmm. So then everything can be okay and then we can go about our business. I don't know if that's like a cultural thing or if that's just a human thing. Oh, I think
1: that's probably a Western culture thing. Mm -hmm. And it, it can also be very generational. Mm. I think the pressure to perform grief and bereavement in a very particular way must have been a lot higher in the 60s, in the 70s. Sure. Because if we think those things aren't really talked about a whole lot now, take a few decades away. And you were basically told, you know, take a bunch of volume and come out again in three months and you'll be fine. Yeah. And just never speak of it again. Absolutely. We are certainly getting better at it because we're getting better at sharing all kinds of perspectives. We have this window into each other's lives That can either drive us really far apart or can actually be kind of an empathy engine. And that's not to say we can't do it person to person. Obviously, that's the ideal way. But if it's on a blog or somehow online or something you read on Facebook, we just see a lot more discourse around emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. no matter how clumsy it might be and sometimes misguided and sometimes messy and sometimes embarrassing. But we're we're being a lot more active than we ever have been before. I feel pretty safe saying that. So that's something. And we're not always going to get it right.
0: But we're doing it. For we're sure. not holding it in. Now, you started the blog. Then you started writing about this experience as it kind of unfolded. Yeah. Then you had Glow in the Woods. I feel like a lot of your writing over the last, I don't know, five or six years was really focused in on some of the cool, like, adventure novels. You wrote the kids' books. Yeah. How did you come back? I don't. I don't want to say come back because I don't feel if that's the right way to describe it. But if I look at your work, I feel like it's kind of that way. But mm-hmm. why now? Like, how did this book come about now? Knowing that your writing has taken an interesting and, and kind of weaving in and out kind of path.
1: You know, I had been sort of toying around with a story that I had been writing in two thousand five wow. when I was walking in the woods with a six year old, not not my own, um, and my eldest son was six or seven months old and strapped to me, and we. Were were walking in the woods and I started telling this kid this crazy story about these pirates in the woods and I got home and I thought oh I don't want to forget that that's kind of fun I should jot that down so I did (laughs) kept kind of adding to it. I swear, if I had said to myself, I think I'll write a novel now, I would have been completely frozen with the blinking cursor and the blank page. I I don't know I ever would have done it if I had thought of it that way. But to think of it as just playing, like, I just want to capture that because that was really fun. And then I kept kind of adding to it. And Mm -hmm. then I put it away for a while because I just got busy. And then Liam and Ben were born, and then Liam died, and then I had an infant, you know, and then I started Glow in the Woods. And so I was very much living that grief. Gotcha. That's much living in a grief state all the time because I wasn't, but I was shaping that thing that had happened so that I could carry it. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm going to have to carry this story for the rest of my life, that that's a part of who I am, then damn it, I'm going to make it something beautiful. And beautiful doesn't necessarily mean polished. It doesn't mean presentable. It doesn't mean well-performed. It just means I have taken an active role in shaping that. So it's just kind of this constant work around that, which was really therapeutic. But I think at some point I got tired of the close space. sure. And I just wanted some fresh air. And, and I thought, you know, remember that story that I wrote about those crazy pirates in the woods, and I should go back and maybe take a look at that. And I did. And I started adding more to it. And so my first book came out in 2009. And that was the novel, the adventure novel. And then the sequel came out in 2014. And then my first picture book for little kids, which is sort of a dress up book came out in 2016. Do you remember the band Menudo? Yes, of course. They had this sort of roster of young, delicious boys. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds so terrible for me to put it that way, but in that boy band way, right? Yeah, I'm picking up what you're putting down. So so. they were only like, I don't know, 13 to 17 or 16 or something. And somebody would age out of the group and then a new one would come in, you know, on the young end so that they just had this ongoing show. (laughs) So we would always joke about grief that we're like a giant sort of menudo band because <laughs> you kind of age out of the most raw right. need to write mm-hmm. and and your grief becomes a lot softer and a lot more deeply embedded in a way that's often really good. Mm-hmm. You know, like for three or four years, I was really consumed with shaping this story and I was really plugged into it. And now I still am, but it's kind of just more for me now. Yeah. It's just so well integrated that it isn't something that there. There are more things that have happened in my life since then. You know, your heart only gets bigger as your life goes on. Yeah. Whether it gets bigger through difficulty or good fortune. And it just changes the dynamic around that sort of constant conversation in grief. And that's a moment that you think you'll never, ever, ever reach. When you're in it, you think, Will I ever laugh yeah. ever again? Will I ever tell a body joke? Will I ever go on vacation and just drink a bunch of pina coladas at the beach? Will I ever enjoy food? And you think it's impossible that you ever will, but of course you do because time does its work. To sort of wrap this up, I had gone several years just focusing on my career, and I got a phone call in the middle of a client gig, and it was, well, she's a friend now, but at the time, she was sort of a distant acquaintance in Paris, and my phone kind of rang, and it said Paris, and I thought, mm, oh my gosh, who's this? I ducked out of the boardroom, and I picked it up, and a voice on the other end of the phone was just weeping and wailing, and it took me a while to figure out who this was, and it was Irene. And she said, you're the only person that I could think of that has been through this, um... My son didn't wake up from his nap yesterday. Oh, my gosh. She was just completely pulled into a million pieces. Yeah. And she said, what do I do now? How do I breathe? Mm -hmm. How do I keep living? Yeah. She couldn't really form words for herself yet, but she just wanted someone to talk to her. And I knew exactly what to say to her. Yeah. You know, she and I still talk about it and she's in the book. But I sort of hung up the phone and I thought, you know, that felt really good. Hmm. My heart was pounding for her, but I didn't feel like it taxed me at all. I didn't feel like I struggled. I didn't feel like it threw me yeah. in a direction I didn't want to go. And I thought, you know, I think all these years of like just doing my career and focusing on books and novels... I've taken the break that I need like a big exhale and a big inhale before you dive into really deep water. Yeah, Because I knew that writing this book was going to be really deep water. And it's like, am I ready for that? And that phone call made me feel like it was time. And that was a few years ago. And it took that long to write the book. Well, it's funny you mention
0: that because I want to talk a bit about the writing process. Okay. So first of all, I read it, I wrote these questions and I was like, you know, it feels part memoir, part self-help. And then I read the Kirkus Review and it was like, part memoir, part handbook. And I'm like, hey, it's so funny because that was what I felt was so lovely about this is that it is a help. I don't want to say self-help, but it is in a way like there's help here for people. It's not just your story. It's so um, interwoven in. But as lovely as that is, I was imagining how difficult that might have been, Mm -hmm. given that you had some separation, some time from it. You know, separation, I use that word loosely because I don't know if you're ever actually separated from it, but you said, you know, you were doing other things. So how was that in writing this new
1: book? Well, it's really funny because I saw something that was written by a memoir writer that she said, someone came up to me and said, oh my gosh, you're so vulnerable. You're so brave. How can you be so vulnerable? must be so difficult. And she was going on about, well, no, she felt fierce. She felt strong. She wrote that way because she had this wellspring of really, really strong pride and rootedness and it didn't feel vulnerable for her. She didn't need bravery in order to write the book. She wrote the book because she was already brave. Mm. And bravery kind of implies that there's something to be afraid of. And, and I've just, I've never felt that way Yeah, because it is the most incredible thing that has ever happened to me being Liam's mother and walking that path with him as far as i could right and it is a really powerful thing for me not only in terms of darkness but in terms of lightness i'm fascinated by that journey and i find it so exquisite and so delicious to think about why we are here mm-hmm. and how do we end up becoming the people that we are and and how do we find each other and what is significant and how do we cope with these losses you know it's not just about infant loss at all it only uses infant loss as the jumping off point. Right. And that's really all the memoir aspect is, is because I've got to establish what happened to me. You know, we call it a field guide to grief. And I love that because a field guide is for uncharted territory Yeah, for when you really don't know where you're going. But the title field guide implies that someone else has been there before. It is still going to be a path that you have to find on your own, but others have done it. And it it helps to have company, but ultimately loss is a very solitary thing to reckon with. It makes us feel so small Mm -hmm. and it makes us so scared. You know, we're the only animals who know we're going to die. Yeah, This is why the the big brains are are such a blessing and such a curse. Such a curse, exactly. But we have our imaginations and we've got to use them, you know. That's really what the book is for, is to help spark active reclaiming of life for Mm -hmm. people just by letting them know what's on my mind and the places that I went to. I think that's helpful, especially
0: as people experience something that feels like it's only them to to read someone else. Who's gone through that is amazing. So let's get a little bit into the book itself. You talk very candidly about the first moments after Liam's passing. You talk about the first year. And what I want to get to are the helpers, because I know listeners and readers of our site, if they have not experienced Loss in their lives, they probably have had someone else in their life who has experienced it. Mm. What can you say in terms of the helpers? The things that people can say and do in the immediate, you know, like when your friend called you, mm. if our folks listening are those friends being called, but also as the years go on, what are some things that stood out for you in terms of the helpers?
1: Mm. One of my most vivid memories was I was in a store with Ben, and he was, of course, tiny. When we brought him home, he wasn't even five pounds at two months old. Mm. I had him strapped to my chest. I had him in a Mai Tai, and I saw a friend of my mother's who, like my mother, is a quilter, and she made a beeline for me. And I kind of put down what I had in my hands, and I said hello to her, and she grabbed me by the shoulders and said quite forcefully, um, Oh, my God. Oh, my God, Kate. I can't believe this happened. And she just, she was so angry for Mm -hmm. me. She looked in at Ben, who was, of course, tiny and sleeping. And she said, I just can't believe it happened. How are you doing? Tell me how you're doing. Oh, I just, I can't believe this happened. Mm -hmm. She looked at me when she said, how are you doing? And she meant it. Yeah. She actually wanted to know how I was doing. And it was just like you don't realize you've been holding your breath in yeah. when you encounter someone like that. And it's not some kind of magical thing. It's not casserole. It's not flowers. It's not some kind of perfectly worded card or right, right, ones right. or something like that. It's just... Sitting with someone mm-hmm. and seeing someone, even if the sight of them makes you want to throw salt over a shoulder, you know, the, yeah, of course. because it just reminds you of mortality. It makes you kind of flinch. Mm-hmm. Just being with that person, and, and no matter how they are, and of course, never saying should, you know, you should be glad. You already have a child. Uh, yeah, yeah. You should just have another one, or you should yeah. pretend it never happened, or you should yeah. this, or you should that. That's almost never, ever helpful.
0: No, and it's usually more about the person that is saying it than the person it's being said to, right? It's like our own way to try to cope when really we just need to be a container for the person who's going through that difficult time. Yeah, You know, be a mirror and just give them back what they're giving you. And that grief is so hard, right? It's like they say, you know, it's much easier to be angry than hurt. You see so many angry people and not as many hurt people because the sadness and the hurt is just so hard. Hard for us to express. Yeah. But if we're able to do that for someone, it allows for that to come up and it, it gives it a place to go.
1: Yeah. And I, I don't know. I was just trying to think if this is like everyone that feels this way. I'm not sure. But I think for a lot of people that have lost children, they appreciate when people close to them remember that child. Yes. Of their own volition. Yes. That they don't shrink away from saying that child's name. Yeah. I didn't need it to be a constant thing, but, you know, to know that it's not just me holding Liam in my memory, but that other people are too. It's really important for family and for close friends to just remember that beloved person Mm -hmm. every now and then, to just say, like, you know, we haven't really talked for like four or five months. And I've been wondering how you're doing. Are you good? You know, like, how are you feeling about Liam? just to know that you're present in that person's mind and that your loss is something that they're just keeping a soft hand on. You know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. So you talk about relationships as well, new relationships and ones that are lost and then maybe they're found again. And you talk a lot about sharing the experience. And so I'm wondering, do you feel that isolation and the silence breeds pain for people who are experiencing grief and that affects the relationships? And I'm not just talking about like love relationships or marriage relationships or whatever, <laughs> partnerships, yeah. but also you talked a lot about friendships that were lost.
1: Yeah, friendships and family relationships that get really fractured and dysfunctional. Yeah. I think that our very close family and friends are the ones who feel a sense of ownership over our healing I'm putting healing in air quotes. They feel like they have some kind of a license to fix you Mm -hmm. or to sort of nudge you along to some imaginary sort of fairyland other side of being better. Right. That is so toxic. Mm -hmm. It introduces new dysfunction and it slows the quote unquote healing of that person. Honestly, people that look right at you and say, God, I'm so upset about what happened to you. Tell me how you're feeling. Tell me what I can do. That exhale that comes from that, like, thank you for seeing me is like a medicine. Yes, And and not bringing your own stuff to that conversation, not sort of saying, oh, I'm going to make sure that they know all about my favorite yoga teacher. I'm going to make sure that they know all about my favorite God or my favorite holy book. Right, all the fixers. Yeah, like, I appreciate the sentiment and the drive. Right. However, it is almost always a really negative thing for people that are in grief because they need to be with that grief. Mm-hmm. They need to invent a language for themselves to be okay. And what they need in that environment prevention period is allyship and space and patience mm-hmm. and permission to just be exactly as they are without needing to show up any differently
0: yeah. And that's hard for people. I think we tend to be fixers and, you know, like I can give you 14 suggestions on what to do next. You know, like you kind of said, here's my yoga teacher. Here's Pilates. You know, here's a great therapist. When really it's just like, oh, this really stinks. And I am so sorry. Like you said, it sucks. It really is a good descriptor of the experience. It really is terrible. And then you talk about sharing, right? You know, you say like person to person sharing, but did you feel as though sharing your story on the internet and now in this book, would you consider that to be an anecdote? You know, just kind of putting it out there and getting feedback. I mean, even if it was just one person commenting, of course, you had way more than that commenting. But I'm wondering if the writing of it helped as
1: well. The more important thing is definitely for me, the craft of getting it down Mm -hmm. and getting it out there. I think it feels different through the years. When grief is very new, I think that we are shockingly ravenous to find each other I got an email from someone that I'm sort of distantly connected to on Facebook, and she said my husband was out for a bike ride and he died. Mm-hmm. He was fit and amazing, and now he's gone, like three days ago. Um, and she thought of coming to me because she wanted books. She was like, "Where are their communities? Where can I find young widows? I need, I need company." Yeah that's something that i'm really honored to be able to do very humbly as best i can because i didn't really have that yeah. when i was going through it so if i can be a little bit of a guide in that way you know and i was so impressed with her because she asked yeah you know other people need to get better at just being with us and listening and not trying to fix mm-hmm. but at the same time when we suffer through any kind of trauma or loss we need to also practice stepping forward and asking for what we need.
0: Yeah. And that's another whole societal and cultural thing, too, is this whole yeah. idea that we suffer alone, we're strong enough to do this when really we need to reach out yeah. and find, like you said, the allies, yeah. the people who have experienced it before, the people who can lift us up when we can't really lift our own selves up. Yeah.
1: And, and I mean, some of us need deep periods of introspection and solitude mm-hmm. and others need other voices. They're like, I need to talk to someone who's 10 years out because I need to know that I'm going to have a life again. Yeah. And I need to know that I'm not weird for feeling guilty that I want to have a life again. It's a lovely thing when you connect with someone that can help you navigate that a little bit. And so that's the very humbling honor that I have when I can is to hopefully serve as that bit of company.
0: And I think you're sharing from your experience, right? I mean, that's what it's all about. Um, And speaking of which, so you talk a bit about honoring those who were lost, not necessarily just birthdays, but you do talk about death days, Mm -hmm. how those have a stronger pull. And in speaking with you on this podcast, you've talked about how it is a appreciated when people acknowledge that that person was here yeah. and that they're a part of your lives, like whatever that might be. Mm. You know, my sister passed away on my fourth birthday.
1: Oh, is she? Oh. she was nine months.
0: It was the day before she was actually on life support. So I think they kind of did it on purpose, but it didn't really matter. Yeah. But it was like the day before because it's basically my birthday. Mm. And so I've always felt a deep sadness during that time, mm-hmm. you know, even before I had kids. So I, I'm just wondering for folks out there, how can we support people If we're close to someone, we know when their loved one has passed away. You know, like I know when my sister died, like I won't forget it because it's my birthday, but there are people in our lives, they're around, they know when my sister died. What can we do? You know, how can we help people? Now we have Facebook and I know a lot of people will share old photos. It's interesting how it's evolved. It's become like this safe way for people to say like this happened to me and people can comment and share their condolences and share, you know, whatever it is, their empathy in that way. But are there other ways to support, you know, what can we as friends? friends and family do? Do we bring it up if they haven't brought it up? Mm. What would your suggestions be?
1: Oh, gosh. Death days are so individual. It really just depends on where you are in your grief. Sure. The first, the second, the third death days can be really tough. Mm-hmm. But again, it really depends on the person. I mean, some people get really quiet and just don't want to speak to another soul for the whole day. Yeah. Some people are, are not the types to want to memorialize, to want to be public about it. Sometimes they might just have a ritual that they do completely by themselves. They may have a special place they go. You know, I knew people who would bake a little tiny cake on that death day and Mm -hmm. sort of leave it somewhere in nature or like throw it out into the ocean. It really depends on where you are in relation to that person. So mm-hmm. if you Google the ring theory of what not to say. Okay,
0: yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Actually, we'll post that. Yeah,
1: please do. We're going
0: to put obviously links to your book and your website and everything, but we'll post that because I think that is a fantastic example. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen it go around on social media, we'll put it up on our Kumon cool Mom Bix podcast page.
1: Yeah, if you imagine that person as being the center mm-hmm. and then that first ring around that center is like husband, partner, wife, children. And then the second ring is kind of parents and closest best friends. Mm -hmm. And a third ring might be kind of cousins and aunts and uncles, and maybe a few really close friends in your community that you always go to book club with. And then a fourth ring might be acquaintances from work, and then on and outward from there. It's an amazing theory of how to be around someone in grief. But you know, if you're in that first ring with someone, I think it's okay to ask them how they're doing on that day. Ask them if they have anything particular planned. Ask them if they need you for anything. Yeah, And just how are you feeling? I know this is a rough time of year for you because going at someone and being like, what are you doing on this day? And blah, 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 blah. That person might be in a quiet space about it and they may not want to talk about it. They may be kind of just trying to get through life without crying at that point. Yeah, We really don't know. All we can do is just keep asking people how they're doing and just letting them know that they don't have to perform around you.
0: I think that's a great point. It's like, you're not expecting them to say, fine. Yeah. You know, I think we often ask people how they are. And if they say not well, we're like, oh, great. You know, it's just because it's like this yeah. autonomic response yep. when really if like if we just take a second to truly ask people how they are doing and be ready to accept what that answer is.
1: Yeah. Be one of those people yes. that gives permission for people to not be well, yeah, because that ultimately makes people better faster. Yes. So that's I don't know if that's really an answer to the death day question, but there were years that I completely forgot and then realized, you know, days later and thought, oh my God. And then I just beat myself up because in my life I was busy taking care of Liam's brothers and difficult things, challenges, stresses, wonderful things. And then there are years that I managed to go back to the place where we left his ashes and it was really beautiful, Mm -hmm. meaningful and poetic, all of those things. And I meditated in nature and I left notes for him. And then there were years that I I just didn't know what to do, so I grabbed the crowbar and went out and gutted the shed, you know. Yeah. There are some years that it just bottles up in your throat like a vice Mm -hmm. and you just don't have any words and you just feel like this kind of ball of electricity and you feel very unresolved and clumsy in in your care of that dead person. You know, there's a relationship that is ongoing. There's conversations that are ongoing with the people that we've lost. There's a parenthood Mm -hmm. of children who are no longer here. That is this really strange kind of phantom parenthood that I expect is an awful lot like phantom daughterhood or phantom wifehood of a husband who's no longer here. That is a relationship and a dialogue that is ongoing. And sometimes we handle it really beautifully and, and it feels really alive and it feels really dynamic. And that's not to say that the person's talking back to you and you're actually communicating with spirits. But in terms of having that dialogue and that space and that imagination being really lit up and just feeling not necessarily reconciled, but feeling very active. And Mm -hmm. then there are other years when you're just like, I just feel like I just want to friggin' put my head through plate glass. I'm so pissed off at the world. I just don't know what to do with myself. And Liam died tomorrow, four years ago. And I just don't know what to do. So I tore a building apart. (laughs) And that felt really good. And that year, all I needed was sweat on my skin. I needed to have all my muscles hurting when I went to bed that night. Mm -hmm. And that felt right. And there is something really sacred about that. And it doesn't always have to be beautifully expressed in a perfect little cake left under a perfect little tree or some kind of a ceremony. Sometimes it really is just as simple as a good long walk, sweat, sweat, Dirt gardening, pulling weeds, and just being quiet with yourself, you know. Well, I think it's important
0: for people who, you know, might have family members that are going through something like this to know that everyone's different, which I know is not rocket science, but, yeah. it, you know, everyone is going to process it differently. And I think the main theme that I'm hearing it really is just to be present, yeah. truly being present, whatever it is that they need, and asking, you know, depending on what ring you are, you might not want to be the one to be like, oh, hey, I just remembered your son died today. But at the same time, if you see someone struggling and you can be like, hey, I just see, you know, it looks like you're really having a hard time. Like, is there anything I can do? How are you doing? And allow them the space to bring it up or not, I think is really the best that we can do.
1: Yeah. Every year it happens to me that people tag me on October 15th for Infant Loss Memorial Day. Yes. And I'm so cranky about sort of the orthodoxy of what you're supposed to remember and when. Right. That I I'm like, I can't stand Valentine's Day. Like I I would rather just have it be organic and in the moment of when you're feeling it. I live it every day. I don't need to be reminded on October 15th. Yeah. It's manufactured and it means nothing to me. And so people tag me on Facebook and they're like, remembering all the dead babies today, Kate Anglis. And sometimes I'm like, well, it's not that I've forgotten, but somehow it feels like someone just cannonballing into my very serene little pond, like, you have a dead baby. I'm remembering your dead baby today. Yes. There's really no finesse in that. And the thing is, you just don't know because some people are really deeply moved by infant loss and they really kind of live by it. And they put the banner up on their profile picture and they're very, very active around that day. So really, all you can do is just take the cues of the person at the center of all those rings. And if that is their bag, then don't forget October 15th. And if that is something that clearly has never meant anything to them, then don't worry about it. Then mention it to them on December third, and just be like, "I saw the shooting star the other day, and I remember that conversation we had about stars. And I just want to let you know I'm thinking of you. And I know what that means when that person says that to me, and that's enough. It really is so individual, based on what you know of that person. We just need that intimacy, and when we don't have that intimacy, but we still want to be you there for that person. Mm -hmm. I think it's just a matter of, again, just how are you doing? I think about
0: you and I, I wonder how you're doing. It's so simple, but yet I think in an age where we aren't really checking in and we're kind of glossing through things, right? We just kind of like things like I call it like kind of the like generation for someone to take the time just to say something like that, to truly meaningfully say, hey, how are you doing? I was thinking about you, and I just want to check in on you. I mean, I think that just can go such a far way. So I love that. I think that's good. I mean, you know, it's always nice to have sort of like a guide, right? Like, this is what you should do in this situation. That's kind of sometimes a human tendency. And, you know, there are just some things that that doesn't happen. But you've written this to help folks, not just, as you said, with infant grief, but with any kind of grief. Yeah. Um, And certainly your story and you sharing, I know it's affected so many people in the years that you've done this. So I'm so thrilled that it's now a book for people to kind of hold and take with them and mm-hmm. keep by their bedside or even just gift if they know someone who is in need of something like this. Yeah. So where can folks find you? Obviously, Notes for the Everlost, A Field Guide to Grief in your favorite bookstores everywhere, but also just to learn more about you and your story, where should folks go? Um, you have a website and social media. Tell us
1: where. Yeah. So it's just katinglis.com and all the social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, so all the links are on my website. And the book is really easy to find. Obviously, the thing that I always recommend first is go to your local little shop. Yes. Yes. And if it's not there, request it. Independent bookstore and yes. ask them to get it for you and they will in a flash.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Ask your library to bring it in. I love libraries. And another thing, of course, is if you've got a busy life like so many of us do, it's on Amazon and all the other big box sort of online retailers. And the other thing that's super cool is that I did an audiobook with Penguin Random House. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. Yeah. So, Uh, an 18-hour marathon. But it was such a fantastic experience. That's exciting. Really wonderful. So if you're one of those people who perhaps commutes and likes to dig into something really thinky in the car, then come and wander with me and and my voice from a little cave in Nova Scotia. I love that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me. I love talking to you anyway, but especially about this topic, I know that it's a happy and an unfortunate meeting that this is how we connected on the internet, right, is through this story Mm -hmm. that was so sad and touching, but to see where it's come and to see how this is affecting and, and helping other people is really exciting. So I'm so thrilled to have you and to share your new book with everyone. Thanks so much, Kristen. Well, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Spawn. Thanks so much to our guest, Kate Inglis, for joining us. Liz, we miss you, but we know you're going to be back. Can't believe it's going to be our last episode of 2018. Huge thanks to our engineer, John Bowen, especially from me, because I've had this crazy voice thing happening for the last week and a half, and he's been so amazing to help me sound, mm, I don't know, like I have a little bit more of my old voice back. Here's hoping by next week, I'll be fully healed up. But you know, losing a voice with four kids, this could be months until I get my voice back. And hey, we love hearing from you leave us a review on iTunes and make sure to subscribe. In fact, you can do that right now while you're listening and be sure to download or save our episodes. It actually helps more listeners find our podcast. And you know, we love our listeners, the more the merrier. So thanks so much for listening to this episode of Spawn. This is Kristen. Have a great day. Bye.